Hello and welcome. This is the Fit for Privacy podcast, the podcast for professionals. I'm your host Punit Bhatia. In this podcast, we talk to influencers so that you get to listen and learn from their experiences and thoughts. Remember, this is not legal advice and if you need one, please contact a professional with your situation. So let's get started. Hello and welcome. Today in the Fit for Privacy podcast, we have a very special guest, a special guest who has been on top of that is in number one in Forbes 30 under 30. He has been a venture capital experience for five years. He's done over 20 investments and he has won many, many awards, including, as I said, the number one place in 30 under 30 of Forbes. His company, Mine, is also placed number one in the App Store for a day and number two for a month on Product Hunt. So he is doing a lot of things. So, and I'm talking about Gail Ringel. So hello and welcome, Gail. Thank you very much uh, for the quick introduction and for having me, uh, Puneet. Uh, may I share a few uh, words about my career? For sure. It'll be very interesting to have the story on how you came into privacy because it's interesting, venture capitalism and so on, and now privacy and mine. So if you can also elaborate what mine does, it'll be really interesting for us. No problem. So uh, a little bit about my career path. Um, so I was writing code and hex stuff since I was uh, really young, around the, the age of uh, eight years old. And this is what eventually got me drafted to the 8200 unit in the Israeli army. Uh, mm. Have you heard about that unit? I heard about Israeli army, but I haven't heard about that unit which you're mentioning. But tell us. So the 8200 unit is uh, the cybersecurity offensive unit uh, of Israel. It's part of the Israeli intelligence. Um, basically, most of the cybersecurity space in Israel is built out of people that uh, came out of those units. Um, this is where I uh, acquired a lot of my cybersecurity and engineering skills. And I did a really long army service of six years. I enlisted mm. an officer with a captain rank. And I did a lot of engineering around cybersecurity offensive products. Mm. And after my army service, I had a few other engineering goals. But after 10 years of hands-on technology, I decided to change my career and move on to the business side. And this is how I found myself uh, joining the venture capital community in Israel. But I was working for two US uh, corporates as an investor. So mm -hmm. my first two years were with Nielsen, mm -hmm. US market research company, where I invested in uh, early stage Israeli startups in Israel. And then I moved on to an additional two and a half years with Verizon Ventures, the US uh, telco. And there I invested in later stage companies around Series B and C. And overall, I had the chance to invest in 20 amazing companies in Israel and uh, deploying a total of $50 million in those companies. And as you mentioned, I was lucky enough to uh, awarded the Forbes under 30 in 2017. Hmm. This is a quick overview about my career and how did I get into privacy? 
So in mine in, in general, so we are three co-founders at mine. And when we sat together, we quickly realized that we all really understand personal data and data privacy. Since we dealt with personal data throughout our entire career for many different angles. Um, also, we truly understand how valuable and precious uh, personal data is to each one of us personally, as well as um, how easily our personal data can be used against us in many different ways. And in an era where every day there is a new data breach and, and, and a new privacy scandal, um, just last month EasyJet were uh, breached, um, we wanted to bring a new solution that will help consumers worldwide to be digitally safer online. Mm. And in the same time, I'm talking about the end of 2017, we saw that the GDPR was legislated and about to come into force the year later, 2018. And we thought that, oh my God, it's an amazing regulation that actually defined our personal data as our own asset for the first time in, in the history of the internet. But we knew that without the proper technology that would take that regulation and make it accessible to millions of people, it would be hardly used because regulation are complex and hard as you uh, might know. So this yeah. is what we thought on combining a product that would help consumers take and uh, discover their digital footprint, but also to control it by making privacy regulations accessible. And this is how we started to work on mine. Interesting. So, so when you say my in mine, consumers can stay in control of their personal data. So how does it work? If you can a little bit walk us through, because I created my profile and it was fascinating uh, how it works. And it started sending me notifications saying, oh, your data is at risk. Okay, lovely. So maybe um, just to give a, a short background for all the uh, listeners. So as you all know, on a day-to-day -day basis, we all use online services and enjoy the internet, right? Um, but through these experiences, we leave behind hundreds of digital traces, small bits of information about us that are collected by companies, right? Uh, every time we sign up to a new service, every time we purchase something online, and these traces, when uh, put together, they can give other uh, huge insights about our, uh, into our life, but also they can be used against us. So mine actually powers the future of data ownership because we believe that data ownership, same as privacy, and I'll touch the, the difference uh, later this talk, we believe that data ownership is a fundamental human right that must be accessible to everyone. And what do I mean by saying data ownership? First, uh, accessibility. When you mentioned that you used mine, uh, were you shocked or uh, surprised to see how many companies were holding your data? Well, mostly there were companies which I knew they had my data, but there were about 20% which I did not know. And But I will, I'll come to that about data subject rights. But the beauty of it was when I exercised my right to deletion, I got requests to send them more data. Yeah, so uh, we, we'll touch that in the challenges that I see around sure, this. Sure. So, yeah. Uh, um, so yeah, so what you described, the first step is basically accessibility. Mm -hmm. So we believe that every consumer on the internet has the right to understand which companies have collected this data, what do they do with it, 
and whether it creates any digital exposure or risk for, for him individually. And second, about the control that you mentioned, we believe that every consumer should have the choice to decide what companies are doing with its data. Uh, right. We want to switch the mindset where companies are dictating the terms, and we all have to click I agree <laughs> all the time, to a world where you can actually decide how your data is being used. And this is actually thanks to the GDPR and other privacy regulations. So in terms of your question, to put it in one liner, mine enables you or digital users worldwide to discover and manage their personal data online. And, and, and why you should use mine, you probably ask yourself. So it's, uh, it's simple, to reduce your unnecessary online exposure and minimize potential risks. Mine will basically help you keep your data only where you need it. Yeah. So essentially, when we talk about compliance with GDPR and uh, or privacy laws, and then we talk about the data subject, the controller, and the processor, those three, and that's where it flows. But what you bring in is another dimension, because another dimension normally is the data protection authorities, which look at what's going on. But you are saying you will help the consumer to say, hey, we will tell you which companies, that is, which controllers and processors have your data and how or give you a dashboard on that. So essentially a perspective, a better control, better perspective on what personal data is being kept. But you use two uh, different terms. You said GDPR is exciting. You said GDPR is amazing. And you also said it puts uh, users in control of their data ownership and accountability. But what is GDPR for you in one word? Um, good question. Uh, if I had to put it in one word, I'd say it ownership. And ownership. If I with two words, data ownership. <laughs> right, so very nice, data ownership, that's interesting. And why do you think consumers care about privacy? And I know consumers care about privacy, but for the skeptics as we see it, because the internet came in early 80s, late 90s, uh, early 90s, I mean late 80s, early 90s, and then what happened is we started giving our data because we wanted to create emails, then we wanted to search, then we wanted to subscribe to newsletters, and then we suddenly realized that, oh, it is all a marketing thing, and I have given my data too many places too many times. And now the big players, we have stories, some fascinating and some uh, frustrating stories on what they do with it. So what do you think, why, why do you think consumers will still care? Because some of them say, like my some of my friends who are not into privacy, they say, anyways, it's done. You can talk about privacy, you can talk about legislation, but the data is everywhere and we can't control it. So why should a consumer or care about it in your perspective? It's a really good question. And I, when we started mine, we had to deal with exactly that question, even before writing the first line of code. Mm -hmm. And we think that, you know, um, stop sharing data is not the solution. It's just avoiding the problem. We yeah. believe that people should use the internet, and as you mentioned, uh, without worrying, right? And to enjoy the internet, because the internet mm -hmm. can actually help us in many different uh, ways. Uh, and in terms of your, your question, I think that uh, people do care about privacy, definitely yes, specifically in the last two years, and I give you a few reasons. The first one, uh, as, you can, as you can hear, uh, and this is why we're speaking right now, privacy has became mainstream. Right. Uh, 
in, in the daily discussion. Everywhere you go, in any different uh, generations, everyone is talking about privacy. Uh, and the reason is that more and more people feel uh, the, the privacy or the data um, or the data problem uh, on their own flesh and bones. And, and many people think that this is the time to balance the playing field. And just to give you a few examples, uh, did you see the Netflix movie, The Great Hack, about uh, Cambridge and, and uh, Cambridge Analytica and Facebook? No, I didn't see the Netflix movie, but I have a kind of uh, read through many articles on this topic. But uh, go on, go on. So if you're sh going to share some conclusions or your perspective, please go on. So just to say that Netflix uh, uh, has made a movie about everything that uh, happened behind the scene around Cambridge Analytica and Facebook uh, that was being uh, viewed by millions of people. And actually the bottom line of the movie was data ownership, was the fact that, and it was before the time of the GDPR. Uh, and, and the bottom line of the movie was how we as consumers, we, ha we have no ownership about our data and how companies can actually do whatever they want with the data. And actually that movie uh, raised the, the awareness of data privacy to even more millions uh, of people. And another example is the amazing speech of Sasha Baron Cohen talking about social networks and uh, everything that is happening there. Um, but let me explain you what is the problem with privacy. Uh, how do you feel when you have to click I agree? <laughs> well, I, I, I will give you two perspectives. Before I was, uh, I came into privacy and now. Before I came in, I did it just because it was mandatory. But nowadays I do pay attention and I'm sometimes even thinking, okay, with this company, how much of leverage I have? And if not, I just go and read their privacy statement or sometimes terms and conditions to see what would they do with my data. So there's a difference. So I, I don't think I can compare to general people, but still the previous me would compare to other people because it's a nuisance which you have to go through because if you don't click, you don't move forward. Exactly. So people uh, have accepted the situation that they don't have any choice, right? Right. right. And, and and, and even if they did want to take action, how, how would they do that, right? It's, it's very hard to read privacy policy or it's very complex for the average person to understand uh, regulations. Uh, and and uh, this is why we uh, started mine. And, and let me give you another numbers from our product to prove that people do care. So in less than five months since our official launch in Europe, uh, we already uh, saw over uh, 60,000 users uh, mm -hmm. within our product that already sent more than 700,000 deletion requests to companies. Interesting. So 700,000 deletion requests. Yes. And in less than five months, we actually made the GDPR a reality for a lot of people without them really need to understand the law. I think when people are listening to the uh, audio or video later on, they would know, especially in companies, DPOs and privacy officers, because it, it is sometimes annoying to see the volume of uh, deletion requests, and now we know where they are getting originated from. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes, but but I have to say that we are here to work together with companies. We, we are not going against companies. All we did is we took the law, right, and we made it accessible uh, yeah. to everyone. And and you know, until mine came into the market five months ago, uh, I'm, it, it's sad to say, but but the volume of GDPR requests worldwide were was really low, right? Right. Because people didn't uh, know how to use it. And before starting mine, we actually went all around Europe um, asking people in the street whether they heard about the GDPR uh, and if mm -hmm. they did, whether they have any idea how to exercise their rights. And you know what was the answer by most of the people? I think most of them had heard of it because the EU also published a survey recently on similar lines. About 60% had heard it, but they were unsure how they have to exercise their rights. Exactly. So most of the people did hear about the GDPR, but the majority of them, like 95%, didn't know how to use that. And the, the rest 5% who did use it once said it was really complicated. Yes. So this is, so we took the law, we made it accessible to, uh, to consumers, and in the same time, we are constantly working with companies to help them improve all of their compliance efforts on the company side. So, uh, and part of our uh, mission, and I'll touch that in the challenges uh, later on, is to create a bridge between consumers and companies mm -hmm. about all the data privacy experience. So we want, so we want to help both sides. We want to help uh, users uh, discovering their digital footprint and to and to control their data and reducing their online exposure to mm -hmm. avoid digital risk. But on the same time, we want to help companies to close those requests much faster because we understand that it's a hard task on their side. Uh, and, and, and just to share another uh, surprising number, which I haven't shared uh, yet, is that since we launched mine, we actually saved more than uh, 50,000, uh, 15,000 users from a potential data breach. Hmm. And you know how we did that? They actually used mine to delete one of their online accounts that actually got breached a few weeks or <laughs> months after. Uh, and just to give you a specific example, last month during the EasyJet breach, uh, we actually saved 1,500 uh, users mm -hmm. that deleted their EasyJet account before the breach happened. So mm -hmm. for, for within mine, for every user, we actually able to measure how did we make made his digital life safer in terms of in terms of his online exposure and digital risks. It's like an NPS for consumers uh, mm -hmm. around data privacy. Good. And then how do you see then the future of privacy? Because given uh, the, our earlier conversation that Facebook or Google and everybody has their, uh, their data, sometimes people say, I will not get ownership, but what these laws will do is at best, maybe there'll be monetization of data. So I will start getting a part of the monetization that big companies are earning. But how do you see that for the future? I think that Google and Facebook uh, are not the only problem. Um, just to share my perspective, my digital footprint consists of uh, almost 800 companies. Mm 
Mm-hmm. I've collected my data in the past. 800 companies. Okay. Google and Facebook are only two companies out of which. And if I did want to, you know, stop using Google on Facebook, I can easily delete my account. Uh, and, 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 and I discovered that a lot of people are happy with using Gmail. So it turns out Google actually uh, provide them with uh, some sort of value. So in terms of your question, the future of, of privacy, I think that stop sharing is not the solution. Again, it's the, just avoiding uh, the problem. So mm-hmm. for the future, we believe that people should be able to use the internet without worrying, and, uh, but uh, while being in control over their personal data. And, and for years, people said privacy is dead. But the, the truth is that privacy has evolved. Uh, right. And let me explain. Privacy was always about putting fences around us, right? Keeping from sharing our personal data with others. But if we do that, we are um, missing all the fun, right? Uh, just to give you an example, if you use a VPN, for example, uh, to, to uh, protect your privacy, but you will surf to your bank account, you would immediately get blocked, right? Yeah. Um, so I suggest that we rethink the problem. And what if instead of thinking about data privacy, we think about data ownership? And now with GDPR, CCPA, LGPD, and other privacy regulations in place worldwide, we can actually live without fences and share whatever we want uh, and uh, with whoever we want but we we are able to take it back whenever we choose and this is exactly data ownership uh and and this is what we will do uh and this is what mind solve we we help consumers leave their data only where they really need it only where they still get value from and on the same side we help companies um create a better privacy experience for their users yeah and i think it's also ownership and responsibility and knowing where it's getting shared. So definitely. Yeah. But then looking at it from a compliance standpoint, we observe that compliance with GDPR is a big challenge for most of the companies. And it's it's an ongoing challenge because one day you are compliant and then next day again if now something new pops up and you have to take action. So in your observation, what is the biggest challenge in compliance with GDPR? This is a good question. I think that um, GDPR is a very good start, but definitely we have a still way to go. Um, I'm representing the user voice in the market of compliance. And after sending more than 700,000 deletion requests to companies worldwide, we discovered that that companies are still not fully compliant and it takes them time to complete the process. Uh, It varies from uh, two weeks to 45 days, even 60 days in some cases. Uh, mm-hmm. And remember that specifically in the GDPR, companies have up to 30 days to comply. Uh, and um, and I think one of the, the other challenges is that the GDPR did not set any standard on how consumers should approach companies with their privacy requests. And so mm. it's a total chaos right now. And so as we speak, we are working on a solution that would standardize that problem to be able to streamline uh, DSRs uh, in an enriched mode directly to the companies and basically make sure that every time a user requests 
to the leader data, the company would get all the information necessary to fulfill with the request. So basically to um, reduce the time spent on their side. Yeah. So when you talk about the operational challenges around data subject rights success, so what is exactly the challenge and how do you see that getting solved? Because I do understand from company perspective, it is challenging to find out where the data is. It's challenging to validate if it's the right person. And that is what takes time. And of course, you're right that there's no such standard, but those things will evolve. It's same with data portability. It's easy to say you should port data, but the interoperability standards have to come through. But talking about data subject, data subjects, so what challenges do you see in data subject access requests and how will you solve them? I think that the biggest challenge for data subject request is that they don't, for the data subject, uh, sorry, is that they don't understand law and compliance. And right. when a data subject wants to delete his data, all, all he wants to do is to send an email to the company requesting his data to be deleted and continue with his day. This is the user perspective. Right. Unfortunately, as we've seen to date, and you mentioned that uh, as well, companies are moving the burden of law to the data subjects, uh, asking them a lot of questions and to supply more information to verify their identity or to prove uh, or to provide more evidence on the fact that the company have the data subject uh, data. So yeah. the bottom line is that the user is clueless and he doesn't know uh, what to do or how to provide right. the company needs. So I think that the companies, again, are moving the, the burden to the user, to the data subject. And the problem is that the data subject doesn't know what to do. So I think that there is a link missing uh, missing between consumers and companies to tra translate all those needs uh, to each other because companies have their own processes and consumers, data subjects, have their own way of doing that. And there is something missing in between. Yeah, there's certainly something missing, but when I look at it from company's perspective, because when I worked as the privacy officer or privacy manager, the challenge is, you do not want to take action if it's somebody else impersonating on behalf of the data subject. So you certainly want to make sure that it's the right person making the request and you are not basically doing contrary to what you should be doing in terms of replying to his data subject. Because sometimes they come in and say, delete my data. And you want to make sure it's the right person even though it's an ex-customer. Or sometimes they come in and say, give me the information. And you don't know if through an email, somebody is asking that information and wants to get the entire personal information, which then can be detrimental to the your customer, actually. So you have to make sure, and there's a fine balance between finding the identity of the person and making sure that it's not, uh, how should I say, troublesome. But yes, there is a gap on that perspective. I totally agree with you. And just to share about those points, what we did quite quickly since our launch is that we uh, made sure that every request would go out of the user uh, directly. Right. So we are not a third party in the process. Basically, every time a user uh, wants to delete his data, the, he, he decides that and the request is being sent directly from his inbox to allow companies to verify the data subject uh, quickly. Uh, That's true. Uh, and in addition, we are verifying the user 
as the owner of, uh, of the inbox. So uh, to avoid the use cases that you mentioned. So right. uh, this is how we, we always improve our efforts to help the companies verify and validate every user and every request. That's true, but I think still the challenge is even though you send a request from your own email, the companies are not sure and sometimes at least because I sent some eight to 10 uh, data subject deletion requests because that data I never, well, of course I had shared it, but I didn't remember it was still there. So I asked for account deletion and they asked me ID card. And the surprising part was when I created my account, you did not need my ID card. Then my email was a sufficient identity because you will send me an email back saying confirm subscription. But now when I'm saying, guys, please delete it, you need my ID. So essentially, rather than deleting data, you're collecting more data. Exactly, and if I'm not mistaken, according to the GDPR, I think it's uh, it's forbidden for companies to uh, ask for more information to verify your identity uh, in order to proceed uh, with the request. But uh, um, it's the interpretation of facts. The GDPR yeah. or even uh, other privacy laws typically they say is when a request is make made, you need to validate the identity. That is, you need to make sure it's the person or the legal representative making it. But people or companies tend to interpret it as asking for identity information. So there's that uh, gap. Can I ask you a question around that, just to uh, uh, for a comparison? So you mentioned that, uh, and, and this is the reality, companies need to verify the user uh, around every uh, deletion request, right? But let's think on a different uh, angle. When you want to reset your bank account, your online bank account, uh, uh, your, your online bank account, and you uh, go to the bank account website and you click reset password and the bank is sending you uh, a reset password link to right. your, do they verify your do they ask for an ID to, to verify your identity? No, because that scenario is different. In that case, there's an aspect of identity which you are changing, the password or the username or some element, even if the profile itself. But behind it, the user data is still remaining same. And in that case, the principle of security, security principle they apply is something you know, that is your password, something you have and something that belongs to you. So there is a three-step authentication. So you are changing your password, that is something you know. Something you have is your device on your mobile, so an OTP comes along. And something that belongs to you is a card which you insert in that device and a new number is generated. So the, all three levels are ticked in. But so if somebody's, I'm talking because I worked in a bank and that's how the security mechanisms work. But on the other side, when somebody just sends an email, we know it. the email belongs to you. So that is assured. But we don't know if it's you because email can be hacked. And in most cases, they don't know your phone number. The ideal way would be they send you an OTP and also an email. And if both of them are replied, that means it's the same person. But uh, the uh, identification uh, mechanism is not so strong. I think yeah. the strongest uh, authentication I've seen is when you buy cryptocurrency. Yeah. They would call you, they would ask you to show your ID card on the phone, and that's a snapshot they take, they zoom in, and they scan, and everything, it's done instantly. I think if we can have a mechanism wherein somebody's validating and authenticating 
offline without sharing the data and saying, yes, I authorize that this person is uh, the actual person, but you don't need to worry. I'm certifying that this is a authenticated person. Then this problem maybe would be solved, but there's a little bit time towards that. It's always works in steps. I meant I, I find it interesting to see that for deleting your data, companies required your ID, but for resetting your password to your bank account, which might be much more sensitive, right? Uh, you can do that freely. So in the terms of a hacker, if he took down your inbox, he can do the same, uh, right? But uh, I don't know, it's a theoretical uh, uh, question. But what we will do is uh, we will help companies to verify the user right. more ways to uh, move the burden from them to us. So basically, every time they get a request, a DSR, they can be sure that it's already verified and validated, and they can uh, focus on fulfilling the request. Right. I think fair enough, because deletion of data is an extreme step, and after that, if you truly delete it, there's no way back. I agree. So it's important to be careful. While in a password reset, you can still control it saying, is he making the transaction within 30 minutes, one hour, because you'll inform the customer and what kind of transaction is the person making to the same payee or a new payee. So there are different levels of controls in that case, because that's a complex mechanism. And you can put checks. Is he transferring all the money that he had? So that means there's something really wrong and you can block it or you can put daily limits. So there are different controls which are available. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> it's not easy. Yeah. Uh, so. And privacy is also a human aspect of it. So there's the human perspective and there's the regulatory perspective. So from regulatory perspective, what is the biggest achievement of GDPR? I know we talked about it's on the table of every board, every conversation. And in fact, if I see even in Corona, people are not talking about Corona. They are talking about how much data is getting shared and so on. So that for me is a big win of, for GDPR or big win for privacy. Because, okay, it's a negative news, but you look, have to look at it the positive way. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, please go ahead. I mean, I want to know your perspective on that. So you mentioned the corona in terms of GDPR, which is really interesting because we made, a, we've done a research uh, internally on all of our users, obviously anonymized, and we wanted to check how COVID was actually making our data more exposed than before mm -hmm. the pandemic. And, uh, we, and, and we actually published our research on Business Insider, and we discovered that the um, digital foot, the average dig digital footprint grew by 55% starting March 1st. Meaning wow. when the pandemic hit Europe on March 1st, mm -hmm. and, and until uh, we measured until the end of June, we actually saw that the average data exposure or digital footprint grew by 55% globally. And, and why is the reason? Uh, you know, all of us were in lockdown, right? So we had to move our entire offline activities, like buying groceries or going to the mall uh, to shop online. Yeah. And do all of the activities that, that we used to do offline, online. And basically that means that we had to sign up for more services to right. purchase more things. And the flip side of it, we had to give away more of our personal data comparing to before. 
So uh, this is actually, and we have really interesting statistic to different uh, industries and different geographies. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I think that uh, going back to your question, I, I think that uh, the biggest achievement of the GDPR from a regulatory uh, perspective is two things. The first one is uh, defining consumer data as an asset and, let, and letting consumers be more knowledgeable about their data and to take action. This is the first win. The second win is, um, you know, uh, and you touch that, uh, having companies be more responsible and accountable for our yep. data globally made companies rethink twice before they collect data or before they do something with it, which basically makes our data uh, more, uh, so, so they respect more of our users' uh, privacy. Uh, and um, yeah, this is the, and, and maybe lastly, you know, GDPR was being copied worldwide, right? Of course, <laughs> that was also a big success. <laughs> I think this is also a big success. Many other geographies and countries think that the GDPR has something good in it. Obviously. No, I think some of the laws I've read after GDPR and I feel like, oh, and they change for the sake of changing some things. You say, why, why you can also copy with pride saying we use GDPR rather than create your own law and create some confusion. Well, anyhow, so then two, we are two years into GDPR, two years and a little bit. And what successes do you see that GDPR has brought already? I mean, we talked about one being replicated as a law across uh, countries or many countries and still coming up. But what else do you see as successes? So other than being copied to other geographies, I think that the biggest success in our perspective is that um, after our users have exercised their uh, right to erasure, right to be forgotten, mm -hmm. uh, 100,000 times, and after seeing almost 60% completion rates mm -hmm. uh, of, of the request, so here is uh, me saying good job to all the companies that actually, you know, added the uh, privacy tools on, on their side to handle those requests. We, we are proud to say that people are empowered to use the GDPR to be safer online, to control their data, and to uh, move one step closer to own their data. Uh, right. And, and this is also goes back to your first question or second question of whether people care. So mm -hmm. people, are, people do care, and, right. more, and, and more people are starting to uh, uh, talk more about privacy and to take more further steps in doing something around that. Right. I think it, the awareness is increasing and as awareness increases, actions will also increase because yeah. I saw the uh, graph of enforcements. And if you see from start to now, from May 25, 2018 to till now, every month the number of uh, uh, fines have increased. So it, it's a different uh, thing. But you talked about that you also help the companies in terms of compliance with GDPR. So what is that dimension of it? So uh, what we're doing right now is in order to standardize the privacy market from the consumer side, we are working on a solution that will allow any company 
to define all the data points that it needs around every DSR in order to verify and validate the user uh, and the request. Mm -hmm. And we will make sure to deliver, uh, uh, we call it enriched DSR, uh, to deliver it directly to the companies with the user consent, uh, obviously, mm -hmm. to allow both the users to have a more quick um, handling uh, of the request for each site, so it doesn't have to answer a lot of questions or to supply information. We do that for him automatically, but on the same time to help the companies get all the data they need in advance so they can actually focus on fulfilling the request. As you mentioned, to, to, to search and discover all the data within their, their premise and to actually delete it. Yeah. So essentially what you're saying is the consumer trust one company, that's your company, and you take care of the validation, identification or other things rather than the data having to be distributed across the web. So we want to do even something bigger than what you mentioned. We want to create, oh. we, we want to create an, a network or a layer, if you can say, for everyone to use, any person who wants to delete to uh, request its data to be deleted, not, mm -hmm. not specifically through mine, and mm -hmm. for any company to to come and sign in that, to sign up in that network, define all the data they need, and we will make sure that all the DSRs worldwide are being uh, handled the right way. So it doesn't really have to be uh, through mine. So we want to power an infrastructure that everyone can use. Good. And you mentioned that there are 700,000 data deletion requests in Europe and about 60% responded. That means around 40% not responded, which is also a huge volume. But are the data deletion requests being made outside of Europe as well? Yes, so actually the 700,000, it's worldwide. It's not specifically in Europe. Uh, actually, uh, I think that 60% uh, out of it is uh, in Europe. Uh, and the rest is actually 20%-ish is in uh, the US, and the rest is worldwide. We have a lot of users in Brazil mm -hmm. uh, exercising their uh, LGPD rights. Yep. We also have a big test in India mm -hmm. uh, that we're uh, checking everything that is happening around privacy regulation there. We have another big test in Canada, testing uh, Pipeda, uh, also in uh, Japan, in Singapore, and basically what we're doing right now is uh, somehow mine got carried word to mouth to many people worldwide. So what we're doing, we're starting to um, uh, allow them to exercise their privacy rights in their local geography. Mm -hmm. Good. So essentially it's worldwide that you're looking at. Yes. And then uh, how do you stay up to date with all this? Because you talk about all these laws and, and not just GDPR. So how do you stay up to date with the latest developments? Because it's quite a challenge with so much of information flowing in and so many uh, news and everything. So how do you pick and choose what is relevant? So first, uh, thanks to you. I'm doing a lot of uh, podcasts and uh, <laughs> uh, online webinars, and I'm going to conferences before COVID. Uh, but in general, we are highly involved in uh, privacy associations like IAPP, 
Mm -hmm. uh, we work closely with Omer Tene and all the wonderful people uh, within IPP. We also have close touch to the future of Privacy Forum, uh, Jules Polaneski and Limoges right. and their team. Uh, we also had a chance of working closely with David Hoffman, uh, the Chief Privacy Officer of, at Intel, uh, which uh, we have a really uh, personal and interesting uh, relationship. Uh, and all the other privacy experts worldwide, where we are constantly talking with them to increase their awareness, to learn from them how, we, how can we improve our efforts, and obviously, we are uh, collaborating with a lot of companies and law firms worldwide to understand how can we encapsulate all the privacy regulations in one place to serve both the consumers and the companies. That's very interesting. So it's wonderful to have you, but I think as you recognize, there are always time limits. So in a sense of time, what would be your one final message for the audiences? So it's very simple. Data ownership is a fundamental human right. Yeah, but that's in Europe because most of the US companies, I know I said it's the last question and I'm breaching that protocol. But in US, most of them look at it as a consumer right, not a fundamental right. So uh, my final message would be no problem is that uh, I invite all the consumers to go to saymind.com and to discover their digital footprint and take action and not to give up about their data privacy uh, because now they can actually do something about it. And I invite all the companies to collaborate with us and to help us improve our efforts so we can create a better data privacy future and bridge between consumers and companies. Great. So if people have to use mine or people have to get in touch with you, what's the best way? So if they want to use our product, they can uh, go to saymine.com. It's still free for everyone to use. Uh, and if they want to reach out, they can reach out to me over Twitter, over LinkedIn. I'm very, very uh, uh, responsive. And I invite everyone to reach out and to share their thoughts and to give us feedback on how we can improve our product and efforts. Great. Okay, then thanks, Gail. It was a pleasure having you. And ladies and gentlemen, this was Gail Ringel, the CEO of Mine. And if you want to explore more about Mine, go to saymine.com and do what you want to see about your data. Thank you very much, Punit. I had a really great time and I'm looking forward to uh, collaborating more. Thanks. Thanks, Gail. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you like this effort. Please do click like, comment and share. It is okay if you did not like it. Please still do make a comment and share with us what we can improve. If you have suggestions, ideas for guests or you want to have your question answered, please email me. My email is info at punitbhatia.com You can also share this with others and if you do so while tagging me in, I will personally thank and acknowledge your contribution in coming episodes. Thanks once more and look forward to seeing you back. Till then, stay safe, stay blessed and stay happy.